Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives on urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Jr. James Cross. We're so excited to welcome Daron Asimoglu on the show today. Daron Asimoglu is an institute professor of economics at MIT. He's the author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller, Why Nations Fail, Power, Prosperity, and Poverty, as well as more recently, The Narrow Corridor, State Societies and the Fate of Liberty, and Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity, which was co-written with Simon Johnson. We'll be discussing that book today. His academic work covers a wide range of areas, including political economy, economic development, economic growth, technological change, inequality, and the economics of networks. Welcome to the show, Professor Asimoglu. Thank you for having me. uh, I'm excited to be here. So I'd like to start with a brief overview um, for our listeners. Power and Progress um, is a thorough and engaging economic history um, of how economies and political systems respond to new technologies and who gets included and excluded from the value that they bring. It's also deeply future-oriented and relevant given recent advances in AI. Can you give us a broad overview of the book's thesis and why it might be important, especially today? In fact, part of the reason why we wrote the book is because we are at a critical juncture about how we're going to use pretty impressive new technological tools such as AI. But we were also worried that there is a tendency for these tools to be misused, at least used in ways that are not consistent with the social objective. And a lot of this is justified by a deep-rooted techno-optimism where you don't have to worry about how these advances are being utilized. You just hope that ultimately everybody's going to benefit from new technologies, new capabilities. The more impressive they are, the better for society. And if you ever question this, you somehow get the argument that either you're being a Luddite or that you don't know history because in history, it's always been the case that people benefit from technologies and if you're questioning it in the age of AI, you must be arguing that this time must be different. And in fact, both deep understanding of economic forces and a reading of history relevant to these questions both suggest that reality is more complex. In economics, there are a bunch of forces that imply technologies don't always bring benefits to workers. If technologies are associated with control of information, they may actually undermine democratic systems. And history is full of examples of technologies that have impoverished people, have created much more negative disruption than benefits. And it also teaches us how we can harness these technologies for the social good. So the reason why the book is uh, subtitled Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over technology and prosperity is because we think history teaches us that there has been a consequential struggle over how to use technology. And when we have done uh, the wrong choices, when we've made the wrong choices, we haven't benefited from them. So it's a forward-looking book because we think we can learn from history and we can learn from economics and politics to actually make the right choices and steer AI in a more beneficial direction. But we're also worried that right now we're moving in the wrong direction. 
Right. And so just to look specifically at some of the examples um, that you cite in the book, um, why don't we start off with the Industrial Revolution? Now, the traditional story of the Industrial Revolution is that there were technological advancements. There were some people left behind, people in poor working conditions, but ultimately it was sort of automatic and inevitable that we would end up at higher standards of living and uh, a better economic place than before. Um, what's wrong with that traditional narrative uh, in your opinion? Yeah, I think the Industrial Revolution is really uh, a very, very telling example of the issues. And to appreciate the in in our mind, the correct history of the Industrial Revolution, you have to hold two potentially conflicting ideas in your mind. And I think the resolution of these two conflicting ideas tells us a lot about how to view the future. The first is that there's no doubt we are today, especially in the West, but I think in many parts of the world as well, hugely fortunate, much more prosperous, much more, much healthier, much more comfortable because of the process that started with the uh, industri British Industrial Revolution application of knowledge and uh, industrial advances to the production process. But it is also the case that there was nothing automatic or inevitable about that. And the reading that we always get about the industrial process is, look, there were a few rough edges to be sorted out, but look how wonderful everything was. And anybody who resisted or questioned those advances was absolutely wrong. I think that's too simplistic. The first 100 years of the Industrial Revolution were awful times. We know that working conditions got much worse for the majority of the British workers. Real incomes were mostly constant. There's some uncertainty about that. But we know that working hours increased by about 20%. Discipline, even repression in workplaces intensified. As late as 1840s, you know, almost 100 years after the official beginning date of the Industrial Revolution, there were children as young as six working 16, 17 hours a day deep in mines, pushing heavy carts with their heads. You know, this was really a draconian situation. Life expectancy may have fallen as, to as little as 30 years at birth. So there was nothing that looked like broad-based prosperity, buoyant labor markets, nothing that we now take granted about the Industrial Revolution. But even worse, it's not like there was a 100-year period of adjustment and then after that we started, we were going to inevitably start to do better. If you look into the history, you see that a number of major changes, institutional and technological, had to take place. And there was no guarantee that they would take place. And it was only these changes democracy. Britain turned from a highly aristocratic country in which even the middle classes did not have the vote to ultimately every man and then every every uh, adult having the vote. Trade unions, which were banned and heavily prosecuted, became legal in the last uh, quarter of the century and uh, uh, very draconian laws against workers were removed. And the direction of technology changed. But once again, these were not inevitable steps that would come with progress or with technological advances. So sort of the, the idea that somehow we always develop the right institutions to harness the technologies. There is no evidence for that. In fact, the institutional 
change was the outcome of a very deep struggle. Again, in the 1840s, uh, the Chartist movement made minimal demands for political participation and better rights for people. They were extremely careful not to include any radical ideas in their program so that they wouldn't be accused of being revolutionaries. They collected three million signatures. Can you imagine that before the age of you know mass media, television, social media to support this? And in return, parliament completely turned down all of their proposals and jailed all of the leaders of the Chartist movement. So there was nothing automatic about the institutional changes that would ultimately undergird shared prosperity. So the lesson to learn from the Industrial Revolution is not that there is an automatic process and we should always just sit back and let the technological show play. But we have to build the institutions and steer the direction of technology in a more beneficial direction. There are ways of doing that, but it's not going to take place by itself. Right. And so to discuss sort of specifically, um, I, I want to come back to institutions in a moment, but to stick with the industrial technology, um, to focus on two examples of the technology that you mentioned in the book. One is mills, um, the development of a, a steam engine or a, 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 that's able to operate a mill more effectively than it, than it was before. And the second one is the railway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so could you could you contrast the way that these two different technologies influence uh, labor dynamics uh, in England and also sort of what lessons that gives us. Yeah. You know, we sometimes think of the Middle Ages before the Industrial Revolution, before Renaissance as periods that lack technological ingenuity. That actually turns out to be not the case. There are many advances in both organizational production, new crops, new methods of uh, increasing land productivity, and there are some pretty impressive new technological tools, including mills, uh, windmills, for example, uh, that actually increase the ability of humans to use energy and use it for a variety of industrial processes. You would expect that such advances would then bring some amount of prosperity to workers and to people who use the mills. But if you look at the data, what you see is the lives of the most common people, mostly farmers, was actually pretty dark. So the dark ages was in the lives of these people, not in technology. And the reason for that is because they don't see any of the benefits. What happens to the benefits? The benefits are captured by the aristocrats and the clergy. And when you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. First of all, they owned a lot of the land. They controlled the land. So they were the ones to implement these uh, advances. But worse, this was not a uh, labor market in which people freely sold their labor or could negotiate better terms. This was a highly coercive market in which uh, the regular people owed service and other types of obligations to the clergy and uh, uh, and, and, and the aristocratic landowners. And as a result, the power balance determined who would gain from it. Another uh, striking example actually comes from this country. A transformative technology that we mentioned briefly in the book is the, is the cotton gin, which uh, turned the U.S. south from an economic backwater to one of the most dynamic parts of the uh, world economy that fueled the Industrial Revolution, becoming the largest exporter of cotton. But if you look at the data, you see that the conditions and lives of the workers who actually produced cotton, which were the black and slave people, got much worse because 
they didn't have the power and the power of the landowners uh, who applied the cotton gin was used to repress them even further and move them further down south uh, to work under harsher conditions. Again, that shows how the distribution of power really shows, uh, determines who gains and who loses. But the other idea that's very important as well is the direction of technology. If technology just goes in the, uh, in the way of automating work, displacing, sidelining workers, there's less ability of workers to get some of the benefits. In fact, if I'm making labor irrelevant to the production process, a key part of the economic mechanism that would that could lead to shared prosperity that firms want to hire more labor and to be able to benefit from that more productive labor they're going to pay higher wages that's going to break down if you all you do with new technologies automate and that was part of the problem in the in early stages of the british industrial revolution but in the second half you have all these new technologies including railways including steel and chemical factories and other new industries where workers are becoming more productive their contribution to the production process is increasing and that together with their better organization are the main engines for why wages start increasing after around 1840s 1850s so if i understand it correctly i see two sort of arguments here and i want to tease out the second one a little bit the first one is that in many ways new technologies can uh, magnify the effects of existing oppressive institutions. And so we need the democracy in the middle of the 19th century in Britain in order to get any sort of economy that's going to work for the workers. The second argument is about a distinction between types of technologies. So there's one type of technology that increases the marginal productivity of the worker. Um, And there's another type of technology that's purely displacement. Um, Could you speak a little bit about the the importance of marginal productivity? Um, in, in this calculation about Absolutely. what new technologies Absolutely. do? Absolutely. You're 100% right. There are two arguments here, and thank you for uh, emphasizing that. Let me just say one word on the first one because it's uh, it's exactly what you said but a little bit more as well. So institutional arrangements that create a balance of power, countervailing power, so that it's not just everything monopolized in the hands of a few people, they're both important for the adjustments, as you pointed out. And they are also important about who is going to gain from new advances because they determine how we share the benefits. You know, the extreme example is, again, the medieval period. Because it's a labor-coercive environment, it's very unlikely that suddenly new technologies is going to transform everything and and, and landlords and uh, and feudal lords are going to start sharing all the benefits with, with the workers. And I think that's a very important part of the argument. But exactly like you said, also that institutional structure determines how you adjust to it. The second is a critical part of the argument. And uh, I think it's, a, it's, it's an often overlooked set of key ideas. And if we think about them, I believe they make a lot of sense, but people often ignore them. The reasoning among some economists and many policymakers and pundits is, well, you know, technologies increase average productivity, meaning you have more output per worker. That's what generates economic growth. Well, if average productivity is is higher, that means that there is more to go around and employers are going to then demand more labor, share this, and so on and so forth. But what this ignores is that as an employer, you're not interested in paying the average productivity to your worker. At most, you are going to be tempted to pay your worker's contribution to output. 
his or her marginal productivity. And in some simple models we write down or use for interpreting the world, average productivity and marginal productivity move together. So it's sort of tempting to say, well, whenever average productivity increases, marginal productivity goes up as well, and then things are going to be fine. But many technologies are in the business of automating work, and that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that in, to some uh, when it's done in balance. Automation means we take some of the tasks that humans used to do, and sometimes these are hard tasks, physically demanding, uh, dangerous, and machines – heavy machinery or algorithms start doing them. That increases average productivity because we need less labor to perform these tasks and we can produce the same amount of output or more output with less labor. But in general, there is no guarantee that automation and other associated technologies will necessarily increase the marginal productivity of labor. One sharp way of seeing that is to go back to this oft-quoted joke about the future of the factory, which says the future factory is going to have two employees, a man and a dog. The man is there to feed the dog and the dog is there to make sure the man doesn't touch the equipment. Well, hopefully we're not going to get there anytime soon. But if that's the type of place we are heading, you'll see that average productivity will be very high. We're going to produce a lot of widgets, a lot of goods with very little labor. But what's funny about this story is that that man and his dog are not very useful to the production process. So employers are not going to pay much for people like that. And if that's the case, there is no powerful economic mechanism for advances in technology that increase average productivity to lead to higher wages. And if higher wages don't result, you cannot get shared prosperity. The majority of the people in a modern economy, in every economy, are wage earners. So if wages don't increase, it's going to be impossible to get shared prosperity, even if you have very strong redistributive tools. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I want to take us to another example sort of in the mid-20th century, and this is the Ford plants. And the example that you gave in the book is that the Ford plants and the way that they organized their factory systems, the way they had inter, uh, interchangeable parts – it actually made – it created a massive new demand for unskilled workers. And uh, there's a quote that I love from it, which is that the uh, – there's a French visitor to the U.S. that said the workman, instead of using his muscles, becomes an inspector. So there's this transformation, especially in the United States, where there was a shortage of um, skilled labor and they used unskilled labor in these factories. And they were able to take unskilled workers and turn them into operators on the, on the factory line. But the same developments – that allowed Ford to create his his assembly lines. Those same developments have continued, I would argue, um, or some might argue, in the same track. It's the same path of development. The factories have become more efficient. They're uh, better machines. But that same development that made a massive new demand for workers back in the mid-century now almost resembles the man, the dog, and the robots. So how would you parse the difference between you know, what can initially be uh, good for the worker, increase the marginal productivity of labor, but then eventually, in, if if that track continues, becomes something that's pure automation and displacement. Well, those are excellent questions, James. But let me step back a little bit because I think uh, giving just a little bit of background might make it easier to answer your question. So I've emphasized automation, and I've 
also cast some doubt on the idea that if all we do with new technology is automate, we're going to form the basis of shared prosperity with wage growth, employment growth, and so on. But then you'll be right to ask, how is it that we actually achieved decades of shared prosperity Some uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, several decades after World War II, where wages grew rapidly? How is it that things were t- t- turned around in the second half of the 19th century in, the, in Britain and in the United States? Because these periods were also full of automation. And the answer is, there's nothing wrong with automation if it's coupled with other technologies that increase the importance of labor. And in particular, new tasks, new activities that humans do for more advanced, more varied, higher quality, and uh, new good production become important. And if you look at many periods in history, what you see is that these new tasks are essential for increased labor demand, especially because many of these periods also have a lot of automation. So some people are being dislocated from the industries and the jobs that they were doing. The American economy, for example, was predominantly, overwhelmingly agrarian in the middle of the 19th century. More than 50% of the population was in agriculture. And within the next 60, 70 years, that number goes down to about 5%. That's a huge reallocation of labor away from agriculture with the advancement of machinery. So if you did not create new tasks, what would happen to these people? What would happen to their labor? What would happen to their productivity? So new tasks are critical. And the reason why we spell uh, in detail what went on in the Ford Motor factories is because it's not the only place where this was happening, but it's an emblematic, it's a symbolic example. Because Ford was very determined to produce new cheaper mass market cars. And he was rightly thinking that could only be possible by using advanced machinery, use of electric power, decentralized electric power, uh, more advanced machinery that would perform some of the tasks that skilled artisans used to perform before, and fast-moving assembly lines or interchangeable parts that would standardize the production process so that you can produce you know, decent quality uh, auto parts that would then be put together rapidly. A lot of that was automation. But Ford also realized that in the process of doing that, you also could create a lot of new activities that would increase quality. It would require more skilled, better trained operators that would work with these machines. You needed new inspectors, as you said, designers, quality controllers. You needed many more new parts. People had to design them and come up with ways of making them fit with the overall car. And then also the Ford Motor Factories, together with many other factories during that period, were at the forefront of introducing all these clerical workers, new people at the back office who were uh, keeping control of quality cost and uh, marketing and so on. So it was a complete transformation that, at the, on the one hand, automated work, <coughs> and on the other hand, introduced these new tasks. And if you look at the car industry in the United States, you see that as it was automating work, it was also increasing employment quite radically. Now, as I said, that's sort of emblematically summarized by the Ford Motor Factory, 
But if you look at other parts of the growth process in which wages were increasing rapidly in the 50s, in the 60s, 70s, you see exactly the same thing. Lots of new tasks. And this is what we started losing at some point in the 1980s, together with institutional changes that went against workers, and that's the root of the greater inequality, we argue. Yeah, I, uh, I, I really enjoyed the emblematic example of the Ford, the Ford Motor Factory. Um, I would just sort of, to give the devil's advocate position of the techno-optimist. Please, absolutely, yes. Um, the techno-optimist looks at the past two centuries specifically and says, well, so automation in certain cases is going to d- displace workers. It's also going to reduce costs across the board, and it could potentially, therefore, increase real wages for the rest of the economy. We tend to find new tasks in all of these advancements. And, and it's not just sort of that in a specific factory there are going to be new clerical or, in, or inspector tasks. It's that across the economy overall, these new tasks tend to crop up. We haven't had a mass unemployment as a result of a technological advancement. And so what would you say to your critics who would argue, look, you know, we're, we're making everything cheaper. People find jobs anyway. This is what always happens when technology develops. What would you say to that sort of techno-optimist tenet? I think that's that's a very good, important point, and let's unpack that. I think both of the prob, uh, uh, points that you make are qualitatively valid, but the issue is the their quantitative extent. What I mean by that is that it is indeed true. There are new tasks created all the time. And if we look at the period that Simon and I single out as a lot of automation and not enough new tasks in the United States, for example, from 1980s onwards, you see in many industries and occupations, you have new tasks. But the question is a quantitative one. Do you have enough of them Mm -hmm. to make up for the automation? And our estimates and the work that I have done with Pascual Restrepo suggests by a long margin, no. The other point you make is also 100% valid. Automation always reduces the labor share. So it will generate a more unequal distribution of income between capital and labor. But it might still benefit labor precisely because of the channel that you've pointed out, which is it reduces costs so much that there is more demand for labor from non-automated tasks and other people in other industries benefit from the cheaper cost of the goods that are being automated. And you see that in some historical episodes, and it's very, very important. We mentioned railways. Railways created a huge number of new tasks. That was very important. But at the same time, they automated certain things that, that were more labor intensive. You had uh, you know, carriage-based and canal-based employment, uh, transportation that generated employment. Those jobs got displaced by railways. But at the end, the combination of new tasks that were very uh, labor-intensive and paid high wages in railways, plus the huge productivity benefits that spilled over to both uh, sectors that used railways and sectors that provided railways with inputs such as steel and machinery, there was enough of the transmission of those productivity gains to those sectors that they boomed as well. So the worst situation, sort of double whammy in some sense, and that's why this relates to the techno-optimism, the optimism, excess optimism part of techno-optimism, is when you automate work without creating new tasks and the productivity benefits are disappointing. This is what uh, Pascual Restrepo and I call so-so automation. You get the automation, but ah, it's not that great. As a result, you get all the displacement and not the productivity benefits. 
And the reason why to be the reason we have to be worried about this techno optimism is because for the last forty years, during the digital age, we've been continuously told these computers, these digital technologies, these electronics, uh, these uh, new communication tools are amazing. They're going to revolutionize productivity. They haven't done so. We haven't seen a productivity surge for except for a short period in the late 1990s from computers. <coughs> the way that they were used, and this was a choice, but the way they were used displaced workers. And we've had this very disappointing wage growth, much greater wage inequality. So if the optimism blinds us to these possibilities in the age of AI, that's when it's most dangerous. Um, so I want to move yeah, into the age of AI uh, and propose a model for you of AI, a very qualitative model, um, which is that could you possibly see AI as qualitatively different from previous innovations for the following reason? Previous innovations, for example, it makes it more efficient um, to farm the land. We have new machinery that allows us to farm the land more efficiently. We need fewer workers. But the rest of the economy is largely the same and demands the same amount of food. And so uh, we're going to have fewer workers using the technology to produce roughly the same amount of food. Theoretically, with AI, if we suppose AI vastly increases the productivity of every service worker who's working in sort of an uh, intellectual field in the economy, if it simultaneously makes all the engineers more productive, all the software engineers more productive, all the accountants, the consultants, the executives, could you see a broader form of growth that happens because no one group of employee, employees is getting displaced at one time, everyone is going to have this massive gain in productivity. This is sort of the techno-optimist idea about the way that AI might, might unfold over the next five, 10 years. Well, thank you, James. I think that's an excellent question. In fact, let me uh, one-up you and say it is in theory, and I think actually feasible, in theory possible and feasible for AI to make blue-collar workers, electricians, uh, <coughs> uh, carpenters more productive. But the right way to think of AI, in my opinion, is that it's a platform or what some economists used to call general purpose technology, which means that it can be used in many different ways and applied in many different ways. And this is why I said this is a critical time at the beginning. There are very, very important choices about the direction of AI as well as very important choices about how AI should be designed, how the architecture of AI models should be determined. As well as the possibilities that you outlined, AI is a very powerful tool for automation. In fact, pre-generative AI that has been spreading in the U.S. economy, not like mega rapidly, but at some brisk pace since around 2016-17, has been used, we find in some recent work that we did, mostly for automation. And generative AI can be used doubly more effectively for automation. If, you know, the current models are not super reliable, they hallucinate, they give up crazy information, they don't understand context, but things are going to improve. If they start doing a lot of writing tasks, a lot of organizing tasks, a lot of inspection tasks, those are jobs that humans pretty uh, crucially uh, using lots of problem-solving skills used to perform, so perhaps they can be automated. And in fact, the humans who were using them were skilled, so this could be so-so automation. So we could get exactly the same sort of problems from AI. But you are absolutely right. There is a promise of generative AI that it could be used in a different way. I think what's so 
interesting about generative AI is that you can think of it as an information retrieval filtering and curation tools for human decision makers, meaning that generative AI could be an assistant to you where the vast amount of information that could potentially be related to the particular problem that you're dealing with, it can quickly get that, retrieve it, filter it to find which part of it are relevant and curate it for you to make it easy to understand so that you, the human, are the pi- is the pilot and G- uh, ChatGPT or whatever uh, generative AI tool uh, develops is going to be a co-pilot next to you. Yes, that promise is there. And if that promise is realized, I think there are many interesting possibilities just like what the ones that you're suggesting. But I do not believe that that's where we are heading. I do not believe that that technological possibility is where we're going to end up unless we do a major course correction. Why is that? I think there are both economic and ideological or sociopolitical reasons for that. Economically, many of the companies at the forefront of the development of generative AI are already in a business model based on automation and centralization of information and using that information uh, for automating or sidelining humans. The corporate sector in the United States is in the business of cost cutting and not wanting to increase wages. So the preconditions for a big turnaround and putting emphasis on new tasks, better humans, more higher wages and more employment, those are not really there. Most companies are still demanding cost-cutting tools and the technology industry is very much in the business of providing these tools. So the status quo direction of technology is pushing us in the wrong direction. But even more so ideologically, even though some of the companies in the in the space, such as Microsoft emphasized co-pilot, the whole industry is in a mindset that goes back, you know, 70, 80 years. We trace it to the Turing uh, <clears throat> sort of ideas about autonomous machine intelligence, where what you want to do with digital technologies is to create more and more capable human-level intelligence. But once you do that, there is going to be a very strong tendency to use that for automation. And that's what determined the arc of the progress of the industry in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and I think it's still determining it. And sociopolitically, the institutional structure, the regulatory structure in the United States, both about how these technologies are being regulated, lack of worker voice, how data is being treated, all of these things are creating an ecosystem in which this wild west towards automation is being made feasible. So that's why we think it is very important to step back and say, can we have a course correction? Why do we need to have a course correction? Precisely to realize the promise that you have outlined. But very importantly, and contrary to what many techno-optimists would say, that is not an automatic future in the same way that shared prosperity out of industrial revolution was not an automatic future. Right. And I, I want to touch on one sort of union of two topics that have been sort of the focus, I think, of your career. One um, is development economics and institutions. Um, so looking at the developing world, 
uh, right now and considering how they could uh, achieve faster growth. And secondarily is AI and these new technologies. The union of them is fascinating to me and the promise of AI as an equalizing force. Uh, so both in the United States, there have been studies that show uh, that AI is most effective in increasing the productivity of the less skilled worker, the ones that were previously less productive. And it sort of equalizes them to the ones that were previously more skilled. Uh, in the same way, we can imagine that AI might be uh, a profoundly equalizing educational force in that uh, what do you learn in sort of a four-year uh, sort of college education? You learn many of the things that AI can do. You learn to write pretty well, basic knowledge of the way that the world works. These sorts of things might allow – might be sort of enabled for people who don't have these sorts of degrees by AI. And as a final, more provocative thought, what do you think about the promise of AI uh, in the developing world today? So not in the United States or Europe, but in the developing world – that largely has internet access, you know, what could ChatGPT do for these economies? Well, fantastic questions. I think this is a great way to sort of bring everything to closure because you've really asked, James, three separate questions. Right. And I would love to answer all three of them, uh, but let me let me give them somewhat brief answers. Uh, the first one is, you know, how... Uh, this brings different strands of my work. You're 100% right. Uh, throughout my career, I've worked on a number of topics, but many of those center around understanding the problems of economic development, poverty around the world, and especially the role of institutions. And the other one was about new technologies, inequality, productivity in mostly developing developed world. And I was always convinced political economy, institutional factors are critical in the latter. But it took me until now to find a kind of framework to put the two together. And that's one of the things that the power and progress does is to sort of bring these institutional political struggles in the context of technological progress. Now, let me now jump to your third question, which is about developing countries, because I think that sort of follows very naturally from that. And then I'll come to the equalizing role of AI at the end. Now, the other side of the coin is <clears throat> how do we think about technology in the context of economic development? And I think the picture that emerges from, say, Why Nations Fail, uh, which I wrote with James Robinson, you know, now almost 15 years ago, is you know, the most important thing that you want to do in developing countries is not block technologies that are going to create new opportunities for people outside of the elite. And that's still true. But what that description misses is the direction of technology. What about different types of technologies that change inequality factor demands productivity opportunities within the developing world. And I think that's where we need to focus on. Many of the technologies that we're talking about today, robotics, advanced machinery, artificial intelligence, and other algorithms, they're going to reshape the international division of labor. What tasks, for example, services, information provision, translation, note-taking, uh, small tasks completions, operations, assembly. Where are they done? Are they done in Mexico, in Vietnam, in China? All of these are up for grabs. I think they could potentially have 
great distributional implications between countries and within countries in the developing world. For example, if you look at the most successful growth strategy of the last 80 years in the developing world, it's what you know South Korea, Taiwan, then China pursued, which is start in labor-intensive sectors in which your cheap labor is an advantage and then use that for exports to grow rapidly and then move up the value chain. If the international division of labor changes when many of these simple tasks are now done by AI or robots, that development path is not going to be feasible. More generally, if we go in a labor-displacing direction, automation direction, we are actually reducing the value of the factor that's truly abundant in the developing world, mid-skill labor. So it has huge implications for the developing world. On the other hand, if we actually find a way of complementing that labor, creating new tasks, making workers that have slow or middle level of expertise act like even more expert workers, like you mentioned in the middle question that you asked, I'm going to come back to, that could be very useful for developing countries. So that's why I think this critical time is not just critical for American workers and you know German workers and Canadian workers. It's actually transformative for the rest of the world as well. So then let's come back to, again, the promise of AI, which is what you have mentioned. I think that's exactly right. Again, that is the promise, that if we can use these generative AI tools to take workers that have some degree of expertise, but A, train them better to be even more expert, B, provide them more accurate real-time information so that they can perform more complex tasks, that could be really transformative in terms of productivity and in terms of inequality. And let me give you examples. This is really feasible. Actually, with our current knowledge level, it's really feasible. Educators. You know, one of the things that we know, uh, we have some evidence on, is that individualized education programs or more personalized teaching works really well for children who are falling behind. But right now, we don't have the resources, we don't have the means to implement that in any mass scale. Generative AI tools could be great if you train teachers to better understand AI and work with that in real time. AI can identify which students are having problem with, with material and how you can change it so that you can actually <coughs> do a mass scale personalized education. Same thing for nurses, electricians. We're going to have a huge demand for electricians in this country. And we already have a shortage. We're not producing enough electricians. That's a training problem. But electricians are also not capable right now uh, of dealing with the very advanced problems, the very different problems that we're going to be facing as we electrify the grid. Again, generative AI is a great tool. And you've mentioned a couple of studies. And I think, indeed, there are a few studies that show if you use a generative AI in a human complementary way, for example, in call centers or for simple writing tasks, it can boost the productivity of the lower expertise, lower skill workers, so that they close the gap with their more experienced counterparts. But I see that as a proof of concept, absolutely a proof of concept showing that what you're just saying is correct. But if you look at where AI is being applied today in mass scale, like uh, news acquisition and simple news writing, like in Bloomberg or BuzzFeed, that's not what it's being used for. So again, I wouldn't take that evidence 
to say, we're heading there. I would take that evidence exactly like I interpreted earlier on, that this is feasible. We could go more that way, but we would need to do big institutional changes and big architectural changes to this current generative AI. What you just outlined is feasible because they were looking at applications where unreliability of information didn't matter. So when you try to scale that up, what you're going to recognize is that the current architecture of large language models is not up for the task. So you need to really make a design change in these generative AI tools. So going back to the same conclusion, I think the choices that we make today, the choices that are going to be made in the tech industry, but hopefully with oversight from regulators and oversight from civil society and the democratic process, have the capability of creating a brighter future. But I think we are right now on a path to creating a much worse future unless we do a course correction. We usually ask, uh, finally, what sort of your one punchline, very briefly, um, that you would leave our listeners with. Um, well, I think I, the, the most you important... You may have just given it. Yeah, I think the most important punchline that I would add to this, and you know, I'm talking to uh, people in the Princeton community, you know, I don't need to say this, but I think... We are all being affected by these technologies, and we all have useful insights and inputs into how these technologies should be used. I think it is very important for people to be engaged. Once you abandon the conceit of extreme techno-optimism, it becomes really crucial that future-shaping decisions are not made just by a few people, but they are made by society at large with input from people. And I think that's the most important thing for us to realize. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your visit to Princeton. Thank you, James. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.